Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Lou. Hey, guys. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the ongoing lockout in Major League Baseball. This is something that may have slipped under the radar of even many sports fans because it's, you know, late January as we're recording this. MLB season isn't scheduled to begin for another two months. NFL playoffs are going on, the Buffalo Bills, things of that nature. Um, but here I'm punching out. We're very interested in the labor side of things. And, um, so we want to get into some of the reasons why major league baseball is at a labor impasse. Um, this is something that a lot of, uh, people who follow the league. And I think even on our show in the past, we've pointed to the expiration of this past, uh, collective bargaining agreement as, you know, a potential labor war within baseball. This is something that has been on the horizon for years now, and now we have reached the horizon. Um, before we get into some of the nitty gritty and the details of you know, what exactly the two sides, the league and the union are arguing over, I, I, I think it'd be useful for many of our listeners if we just start out by defining some terms here that we're going to be using, because a lot of this is... Um, in the weeds, or at least it would be very easy for us to get in those weeds. Um, I, I think maybe a useful first term to discuss here is a free agency. You know, what does that mean? What what does that entail? How does a player in Major League Baseball become a free agent? Very carefully. No, free agency is currently the way it's structured, and I think I can cover a couple other terms while I'm at it. Currently, when a player in Major League Baseball on a team's 40-man roster. Once that, I, I think I can say he here because we haven't liberalized that yet. Once he accrues a year of service time, it sort of starts the clock ticking towards free agency. We'll, we'll get into service time later. Uh, fo- yes. Let's focus on free agency for now. The point is that um, that player, once they reach six years of service time, becomes a free agent, which historically has been when that player is able to get a big payday because they are no longer they no longer have to be under contract to the team that they started that he started his career with. So, you know, you can test the open market, you can see what teams are willing to pay for you. And hopefully, if you've proven yourself, get a big payday at that point. Certainly. That's what, you know, like the Alex Rodriguez contract uh, was all about back in the day. Uh, What was that? The Rangers signed him. Then it was Giancarlo Stanton was the next biggest. There's been sort of increasing kind of um, uh, sort of brinksmanship in that regard from the different teams to pay like very star level players, bigger and bigger contracts in that regard. So being a free agent, that's kind of the desired goal of every major league player. Mm hmm. Uh if you've heard of a baseball player making, you know, eight figure salaries, that 
almost universally, those are guys who were either free agents or use the potential of them becoming free agents for leverage to get, you know, lucrative contract from their team. So this is sort of the high end of Major League Baseball in terms of the players. These are guys who, as Noah said, have six years at least under their belt. And as we're going to discuss today, most MLB players are not that. They are not on the mega contracts that the Alex Rodriguez's of the world uh, earned. You know, the, you know something we discuss often on Punching Out when we have these uh, episodes that we dub the strike zone. Um, today, we might call it the lockout zone, is the fact that the high end of professional athlete salaries is not at all representative of what even the majority of professional athletes are making, even within that league, much less, you know, the lower tiers of professional sports. Uh, It's something that um, a lot of times these labor disputes within pro sports get derided as millionaires versus billionaires. But in a lot of cases that the players are not even millionaires, they're not even that. Um, They're thousandaires for sure. mm Mm-hmm. Um, now, Aren't before a player reaches free agency, uh, as Noah said, he's largely at the whims of the team that signed him, uh, usually out of the draft, or there are various other mechanisms for signing young players that we'll get into later. But um, after three years of what they call service time, uh, most players become eligible for something called arbitration, which is effectively a way for players to get something approaching their worth in terms of how good they are from the team that drafted them. Um, Effectively what this allows for is um, uh, players and teams can negotiate over what they think a player is worth. And if they can't reach an agreement, it goes to an arbitrator. And this usually means that players will be getting, you know, at the very least more than the minimum salaries they were making before arbitration. Uh, There's a lot of focus um, in Major League Baseball lately uh, among players who are called a pre-arb, pre-arbitration. You know, they have not yet reached eligibility for arbitration, and thus teams are under no obligation to pay them more than the league minimum salary, which is currently $570,000 a year. Um, There there was a stat I came across on Twitter um, that something like 50% of service time, which is effectively days on major league roster goes to players who are pre-arbitration. They've not yet reached that three-year threshold. And these players in turn make 9% of the total salary in major league baseball. So as you can see, there's a value for MLB teams in having players who are, you know, new to the league. And, And so the last term we have to define here is year, because there's a lot of, um, negotiation over just what that means. Um, I I guess kind of like the musical Rent, there's a lot of arguing over how do we measure a year. I was not expecting that. Uh, In MLB terms, it's a year of service time if he's been on a major league roster for 171 days out of the season. The season is 186 days or so. So effectively, if you miss two weeks, you don't qualify for that full year of service time. And uh, Noah, I'm I'm sure you could speak to this. Um, This has come up a lot lately, this fact. Yes. Yes, it has. 
because uh, now you can ask how old is a player in MLB years. Well, no. So the the problem is that several clubs, and yes, your favorite baseball team has done this too, have all engaged in what's called service time manipulation, which is basically you hold your player back, your your big time rookie that looks like it's going to be a big uh, impactful player for your club's future. You hold him back for the first two weeks of the season so that he doesn't meet that 100, I think it's actually 172 days now, but who the hell knows. Anyway, point being, you hold him back until he no longer can meet that threshold, even if he plays out the rest of the season on your roster. And that means that he doesn't accrue that season as a year of service time. And ergo does not become like a full major league player until the next year because you can earn service time incrementally. So several players have had this done. Uh, the Astros did it to George Springer. The Cubs did it to Chris Bryant. The Mets, I believe, did it to Pete Alonso. Uh, Actually, there's an article here that uh, we, we read in The Ringer that talks. It's from before the 2019 season. It talks about Pete Alonso as someone who this is likely to happen to. He ended up being with the Mets on the on the opening day roster. Oh, but, okay. um, so he did break camp with them. But uh, the article also talks about Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who did not end up on the Major League roster at the start of the 2019 season. And, you know, at, even at the time, it was obvious his ob- offensive talent. And in the three years since, he has become, you know, a player who was second in MVP voting this last year. So the idea that the Blue Jays were holding him down because he just needed to work on his defense um, – doesn't pass muster, but nevertheless, that's the story that uh, league, you know, league offices have been saying about why they're keeping these obvious star talents in the minors for a few weeks to start the year, so that they can get a full year on at the end of their rookie contract. Ryan, do you remember who it was that admitted that they was it the Twins guy that admitted that they were looking at service time when making their decisions? Because the thing is, too, players can file grievances about this. But even when the league executives are admitting that they do this, even then, it's impossible to prove without basically having somebody, having a a grainy photo of somebody, I I don't know, taking away a bag marked service time from a player or something. (laughs) Like, it's a cartoonish level of openness in how corrupt this is becoming. And... Teams are doing this because, and I know Lou is going to get into this some more over the course of the episode, but teams are doing it doing it because they want guaranteed money into what they're doing. You know, arbitration is a problem because even if the league agrees with you, you still have to take the risk of going head-to-head with a player and his agent and going head-to-head with the league and seeing if the arbitrator will side with the player. If you If that player gets to free agency, obviously they're going to test the open market. So there's a chance there that their contract won't pan out the way you wanted it. So pre-R players are the only players where you have full control over what you pay them. And teams are, through deals like the Wander Franco extension or the Fernando Tatis Jr. extension, they're trying to make sure that they guarantee where their labor costs are going to be for as long a period of time as possible. And they're now starting to do it to guys who haven't even hit arbitration yet. Well, it's not just about keeping costs under control. It's about reducing the ability for that player to play against you later with a team that's going to pay them better. Uh, and, and no, I'm really surprised you haven't brought up your hero, Kurt Flood, yet. Uh, 
because he's the the person who got free agency to be a thing, right? Well, actually, no, because that Supreme Court case failed. Um, Kurt Flood famously, and I've said this on here before, he argued that being traded from the Cardinals to the Phillies, I think I'm correct on that direction, violated the 13th Amendment. So uh, (laughs) not having control over playing for the Phillies is like slavery, is basically what he said. Once again, a way in which the Supreme Court has failed us. Uh, But his, his case failed, but it... Um, two players held out basically the next year, the league, uh, mandated that they play anyway. And then an arbitrator actually stepped in and said, no, you can't do that. Holding out is like the one thing that is guaranteed under the reserve clause. And that's what finally killed it. But Kerfoot was instrumental in sort of bringing that issue before more people. Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. But the, like, it, it is partly a payroll issue and it is partly of controlling money. But if they can control where these players are playing and if they're stuck in a farm system for for centuries, it feels like in, in for athlete world, uh, they can't they their options are extremely limited. And so they can hit their peak athletically still in a position where they don't have the options to go to a team that's going to treat them better or uh, be more successful with them or not abuse them or whatever. And the end result of all of these little moves by teams to uh, manipulate service time and to rely more on players who have not yet reached free agency, who are on the younger end of the MLB spectrum uh, is that players have seen their salaries on, on the whole decline over the last several years. I I think it's like a 4% decrease from 2015. Um, Obviously there was the pandemic year within that, but you know, MLB revenues have not decreased 4%. They have gone up. Um, And since a lot of these terms were baked into collective bargaining agreements decades ago, MLB has seen their revenues balloon exponentially where the growth of player salaries has been largely more linear. Um, You know, arbitration has not adjusted for, you know, the growth in revenue and neither has the league minimum salary, which is up something like 60% from two decades ago, while league revenues are up, you know, hundreds of percent. Um, And so, these are the forces that led us to the point we're at now, where the league is locking out players, uh, preventing any sort of off-season uh, team activities, and preventing us potentially, if this should continue, from having Major League Baseball played at the start of this season and possibly beyond. It's unclear as of yet how long this will stretch, but the two sides are pretty firmly dug into their camps. Um, MLB is like flatly refusing the idea that anything will change as far as free agency or service time or arbitration. These are red lines in the sand that they have drawn. And we should be clear that, you know, Ryan, you you like to mention that punching out, we are somehow always getting outpaced by history this episode will be out of date by the time you listen to it, because right now the league and the players association are meeting and are probably going to announce some, you know, message. I don't, I don't think it's expected that they're going to reach any kind of agreement today, 
it's just the players are presenting their proposal. But the thing is, we kind of know what's going to be in their proposal because they've already made it. The only question is whether they're going to uh, dig a shift back on those proposals to try and appease the league, which I hope they don't do because the league is clearly showing that it has absolutely no interest in an actual negotiation. Um, or whether, you know, they might go for broke. Uh, the league made its status quo proposal uh, last, what was it, on the 14th or so? And the players of whom there were, in fact, 40 apparently players in the room listening to this proposal, and they received it very coolly. They were not happy with anything that the league was saying, and the players' union, I think this time, is is very willing to fight this in a way that maybe they weren't before. The MOBPA has come under fire for not being willing to fight hard enough for even its own members, let alone other sectors of baseball players. But uh, I, I don't think that's the case this time. I think the players rightly see that the erosion of money out of their pockets and going to the owners and so on, that, that that's become a full-blown siphon at this point. So they're pushing for reducing the amount of service time you need to uh, five years from six to hit free agency. They're proposing a return of arbitration. to Not even mm-hmm. that. Uh, what the player's proposal has is that five years would be you're eligible for free agent if you're already 30 years old or 29 and a half. Uh, it's not even a, like five years across the board. It's the very oh. modest request of five years and 30 years old. Yeah, um, that that's yeah, that's a lot less. Uh, they're also proposing, I believe they propose to take arbitration back to two years, which the owners uh, obviously balked at <laughs> baseball pun. But the thing about it is that that's what it used to be until I think 83 or 86. 85 is what I read. That makes sense. That would be when one of those uh, was implemented. <laughs> so this is not this is not. I don't know what you want to call it. Some some crazy new system. It was the way that things were done. And when arbitration was taken up to three years, it resulted in a massive amount of collusion that uh, MLB came up with the Pittsburgh drug trials to cover up because that's what MLB does. Every time they're going to do something like this, they, they, come up, they find ways to distract the baseball audience from it. And they're asking for the league minimum to be hiked up to 775,000 or so. I'm probably slightly off on that as well. These are very modest asks, as you said. These are not things that are in any way radical, which I wish they were asking for. I wish they were asking for, you know, taking free agency down to three years and, you know, making arbitration eligibility after one or even zero. I wish they were asking for these things so that you know, the first proposal could be kind of crazy, and then maybe there could be some negotiation. But they are, from the get-go, acknowledging that they know they can't ask for too much. The league is not doing that. The league is basically saying, we'll give you maybe the universal designated hitter, and that's it. That That's all we're giving you. Everything else is going to stay the same way or get worse. Uh, and w- what we're seeing is after like years of these deals subtly working out in owner's favor to the point where we're seeing this service time manipulation, we're seeing all these little loopholes they've carved out for themselves just to get back to what was the status quo of a couple of decades ago appears almost radical from the players. Like 
the minimum salary hike they're requesting is, I don't know, 40%. But if it had kept up simply with revenue, it would be several times that. Um, and so just, so MLB, of course, has uh, obviously um, an advantage when it comes to the media, which um, networks and reporters rely on having access to the league that the league can largely cut off when they choose. And so you're going to see reporters tend to take owner's side on stories like this. But, you know, just the ability to frame any sort of ask for a decent status quo as radical is an advantage for MLB that has built up over the last few decades of deals that have gotten us to where the gulf between what's reasonable and what's reality is so vast. I mean, number one, I do want to say, and I know at least one listener is going to be very happy to hear me say this, but let, let's, there are baseball writers who have been on the right side on this stuff for a very long time. Um, a lot of journalists, a lot of baseball journalists, and we see this every time we have a Hall of Fame election, we see this every time there's a labor stoppage, which there hasn't been since 1995, but there's been threats of them for a while now. A lot of them don't even have to be convinced to be on the league side. Like there are a lot of people who have gone into basically making that billionaires versus billionaires rhetoric, a realistic thing. And what we're lucky about this time is that the players have ways of making their case directly to baseball fans in a way that they didn't before through social media and through other kinds of, of outreach. And that's, what's allowed I think a lot of people, even people who I think last year weren't on the side of the players, the last time that there were these negotiations to determine what the pandemic season would look like, I think some people are seeing that the league is willing, is not willing to do anything but run up the score on the players. The league thinks that they had the PA on the ropes because, of course, of uh, the pandemic season made it so that the players had to bend. But they don't have to do that this time. And as uh, Maury Brown, who writes on some of these labor issues, pointed out just today on Twitter, this time around, the owners actually have debt that they need to service because of the pandemic season. They paid out a bunch of money in full, despite only playing 60 games. So they didn't defray all of those costs. Now, some of that they have made back, but they're still going to need to pay out some of it over many, many years. And if this season doesn't start on time and they start to lose games, they are on the hook for some of that in a way that they weren't last year. So they actually do have an incentive to come to the table, negotiate with players in somewhat good faith, and try to come out with an outcome that's somewhat mutually satisfactory. Um, but I think the problem is that American rich people are never interested in anything but their own satisfaction. We've been seeing the consequences of that. And now we're, you know, we're seeing that play out in baseball. The lockout is being used by ownership as a pressure tool. The idea being that players won't have the resources to last. And historically, um, players have, you know, had some disunity among their ranks. You know, there's been a gap between the guys who get the big free agent contracts and don't see anything wrong with how things are. And the guys who uh, haven't yet reached that point and do have real gripes with the system. Um, I do think there's a, a risk MLB has run where by relying so heavily on players who are not yet even three years into their careers, much less six, 
Um, they've built up a players union that now consists primarily of guys on the short end of the stick. And that I, I think will probably, if anything, harden players resolve as far as getting something, getting some real progress out of this new deal, whatever it ends up being. I just wish that if there is any bootlicking son of a gun who happens to be accidentally listening to this and supports the owners or out of the urge to support the game rather than the players. um, I wish that you would listen for a little bit longer, come to your right head and then immediately repent for all the terrible things you've thought and done. That works for me. There we go. Consensus. It's just that easy folks. It's, you know, all we demand from our listeners is repentance of any bad views they've held in the past. (laughs) That's right. All right. Before we get too out of hand here, uh, we should take a break. We'll come back after uh, this with um, a discussion of, you know, what Major League Baseball is doing with the players who are not yet members of the union and how that's even worse than what they're doing with the players in the union. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Play ball! And Lou. Hey, guys. And now by their cat. <laughs> yep, the cat. Who is chewing on Lou's headphones as she's we very this. passionate about baseball. Yeah, she's a smart, she's a smart cat. I guess it's true. Um, <laughs> we spent the first segment of the show talking about, um, you know, the conditions that have resulted in a lockout in major league baseball, why the owners of the 30 major league baseball teams and the players union are, still very far apart as far as what they want the next collective bargaining agreement to be. Um, And we're going to move on in this segment to talk a bit about the players who are not covered by that collective bargaining agreement. The players who in the minor leagues and in other countries are, you know, making their way to the majors, but have an entirely different set of circumstances facing them. Uh, Generally, these are circumstances that are much further removed from the uh, eight-figure paydays that we talked about in the last segment that you know come to free agents. Uh, as we've mentioned at times on Punching Out in the past, you know, minor league baseball players are making something along the lines of twelve thousand dollars a year, um, which is absurd when you think about it, and obviously not at all suitable for uh, living a life, but. Nevertheless, is something that MLB has fought hard to preserve, and um, you know certain carve-outs have been made in recent years by certain teams. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know it's something that we should dive into deeper in this segment. Uh, Noah, this is something that you know much more about than even me. Um, shed some light. Right. So the minor leagues, they were recently restructured by Major League Baseball. They were reduced from basically before a team could have as many as seven affiliate teams. 
Sometimes they're owned directly by the parent team. Sometimes they're owned independently. Our local Rochester Red Wings are owned independently by Rochester Community Baseball, Inc., and, and they can affiliate with whoever gives them the best deal, ideally. Um, but basically what happened was is MLB made this huge move. They, they've been taking more and more control of the minor leagues lately. And one of the first things they did after moving the offices into the main MLB offices and fully absorbing them into a league structure is they cut something like 40 teams, some of which went on to become members of independent leagues because they were already independently owned, some of which are being reorganized into a thing called the MLB Draft League, which is apparently going to be more of a showcase league so that prospects who maybe they didn't haven't gotten a fair shake due to injury or whatnot can, you know, show up and and maybe raise their draft stock a little bit. Whatever. Uh, I personally think the MLB draft should be banned because there is no point. If if you want my ideal sports labor situation, there is no point at which a player should be forced to sign with one team. That should never happen. Anyway, having said that, there are currently four levels of the minor leagues. There's low A, high A, double A, triple A. And the player ideally would progress through them on his way to the major leagues. They could be anywhere from guys signed right out of high school to older guys who are, you know, had a couple bad seasons and have signed a minor league deal and are trying to get back in. You sometimes see real kind of like veteran farmhands is the term for them, sort of bouncing around from team to team. They'll be in their early 30s and things like that, and they just haven't caught on. And they are paid just cruelly low wages for doing most of the same work as a major league player. Services, support services like food and housing are, until this year, all of them were much worse. And there are pl- there's plenty of evidence that they were. Guys were sleeping in their cars. They were, you know, sharing rooms, six, six guys to a room. They were eating ramen and uh, maybe delivery pizza and things like that constantly. Some teams sometimes took better care of some of these guys. Sometimes players, especially those who were on the 40-man roster of the parent team, would take it upon themselves to help them out. And this year, MLB did announce that starting next year, they're going to try to cover. I think it's starting next year. I might be wrong about that. They're going to try to cover housing for every minor league team. That parent teams are now expected to be on the hook for that after uh, I it was Jim Crane of the Astros said that the Astros would unilaterally start doing that and apparently miffed the other 29 front offices into agreeing to do that after the season was over. So Thank you for mentioning that. The Astros uh, definitely led the way there and uh, set a good standard. Like They're they're by no means the perfect team as far as minor league behavior, but uh, they, they did a good thing there and they bullied everybody else into doing the right thing too. There, there are a couple uh, directions I, I see going from there. Um, one is that, uh, you know, in leagues that are so on their face, so concerned with getting everything out of their players, it, it just doesn't make sense to, uh, you know, not provide basically anything for those players in the years in which they are developing their skills. Uh, to have minor leaguers, you know, subsisting on nights spent sleeping in their car and, you know, Burger King meals seems absurd when you think about uh, the degree to which teams are, you know, ostensibly uh, concerned with getting the best out of those players. 
the fact that we're getting some sort of honestly it can be described as modernization in this regard is belated but another point i wanted to make in in this is that this connects with what we were discussing in the last segment because the minor league system is something that makes major league baseball fairly unique in comparison to the other major sports in the united states you know mlb teams have these effectively uh storing houses for young talent that they can just offload players to when they choose. And that means they can do things like service time manipulation, you know, because those players in the minor leagues are not earning service time for major league contracts. They're not covered by the collective bargaining agreement between the league and the union. They're, you know, making much less money even than the minimum salary for major league players, you know, and that's just something that isn't the case in other leagues where, you know, you start earning service time from the moment you're drafted. And so even if, you know, on paper, the NFL and NBA rules regarding free agency might be similar in terms of the length of time a player is required before uh, they can earn free agency works out totally different in practice because teams have this additional layer of control. And the thing about it too, is that the, so there are no developmental leagues in football, no actual ones. They use college football as a developmental league. And we've talked enough about that on this fine program. Basketball has the G league, which is weird. And I I think hockey is the other sport with the most well-developed developmental system, probably because it involves Canadians. And in that one, there are multiple leagues and uh, hockey is currently having its own problems. But I will say that anecdotally, from what I know, um, a career in minor league hockey, while not, you know, long-term advisable because it's hockey, is... Definitely from an economic perspective, less horrible. Like if you're going to spend part of your 20s playing a sport and not making a major league roster, uh, being the ECHL or the OHL, I I don't think the OHL is a full-on minor league, but being in one of these leagues is maybe a little bit less terrible than being a baseball minor leaguer. Partly that's because there's tons of them. These are huge rosters. Of uh, And again, there are four levels per team. Partly it's because a lot of these players are, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, but Major League Baseball is about 20% Latina in some way, shape, or form. The minor leagues are almost twice as much, 35%. It makes it harder to organize minor leaguers. There are organizations that are attempting to do so. Advocates for minor leaguers has been big in that regard. Over the past year, they've really gone from strength to strength. And um, one of the things that I know they run into problems with is that when you have a 35% Latino workforce, you're going to run into language barrier issues. You're going to have divisive issues in the clubhouse and so on. And one of the other things that this matters to is that if you're a Latino player coming to the United States to maybe catch on with a team and make it to the show, that's a very different story from a lot of the American players and especially uh, white players who are in baseball, because the fact is that baseball in much of the U.S. is an unaffordable sport. And if you're getting to play it at the high school or college level, you're getting to play it because you have access to conditioning, you have access to equipment, you have access to travel teams and a bunch of other stuff, all of which your parents have to shell out for. 
and they are probably going to end up supporting you through a good portion of your major of, of your part of me minor league career. So you're going to end up with um, a lot of the guys who are getting into baseball into the minor leagues uh, who are not Latine are looking at a completely different support structure in that regard. And that obviously makes it even harder because you've got two sets of completely different concerns. That is flattening out in, in this day and age. It is becoming less of a difference. But for the longest time, it was why it was difficult to get minor leaguers all on the same page. And I will say, generally, we don't criticize unions on this show, but for a very long time, the Players Association didn't do enough to do outreach among minor leaguers and speak to their issues. They could still be doing more, but they've actually changed somewhat in that regard, uh, partly because so many of their guys are now suffering from these issues due to things like service time manipulation and you know the league's uh, refusal to essentially change anything. This gives us an opportunity to transition into what we wanted to do next with this segment, which is talk about you know where a lot of these international players are coming from and why that's almost a Wild West situation in, in many regards. While a lot of MLB players are coming up through the draft, which is this ordered system by which teams that perform worse are afforded the opportunity to uh, sign better players coming out of high school and college, the international Normal. players are um, effectively, it's an open market for players starting at the age of 15, I think is when they're officially 16. allowed to sign contracts, 16. But uh, as we've read in these articles, um, the line of uh, that is very blurry because teams are getting agreements from players earlier and earlier. So the the weird part about this is that the international market, um, I I actually tried to understand how teams are put into their different bonus pool levels a couple uh, weeks ago. And, um, well, I don't remember anything between then and now. Noah, could you maybe explain what the bonus pool is? Right. So what it is is that teams are assigned a certain amount of money that they can spend on signing international players, signing bonuses. and. Again, I'm not really sure how it's calculated. I know it has to do with something uh, in the draft and so on, in the MLB draft. And that's about as far as I got before it didn't make a whole lot of sense. But the point is that teams are assigned to these different levels, right? And they use that on signing prospects. So, for example, the signing period just happened uh, a week or so ago. And some teams, the Chicago White Sox, signed three. Some teams, the Marlins, signed 30. Uh, actually, no, sorry. The Marlins signed 27. The Dodgers signed 30. So you've got this big difference in which teams invest. You've got differences in which teams invest in which territory. So, for example, almost everybody's involved in the Dominican Republic. Some teams are more heavily invested in Cuba. Um, some teams are more heavily invested in Venezuela or Colombia. The Miami Marlins, again, and I don't, I can't believe I'm sneaking two Marlins mentions in here, are investing very heavily in the Bahamas lately and, and trying to get guys out of there. So there's even like a sales territory kind of thing. And whenever you hear the word, there's a sales territory kind of thing, that's not good. There's going to be bad things coming after you hear that phrase. And indeed there are, because what's been happening is that so this used to be that you wanted to sign guys 
when they were 16, bring them over, have them develop within the minor leagues, and then, you know, debut down the line. And especially in the Dominican Republic, but also in Colombia and Venezuela um, and in Panama, that that's the other big one where this is happening. You have a system of baseball academies where trainers will establish a, a program where they can have these kids live at the academy, do baseball, um, go to school through the academy. I don't think they employ teachers or anything, but they live in a different area where they might be able to do that. Uh, Puerto Rico did something similar, but their players are draft eligible. They became that way in the 1980s, apparently. So that's a whole different ball game. No pun intended. And you've got this thing where, because of that, teams are in an arms race to find the youngest possible kid they can make a verbal agreement with. So where it was supposed to be 16-year-olds, they're now making verbal agreements with 12-year-olds, which, like... I don't know. I feel like most 12-year-old kids playing baseball, you don't know if that kid is going to be MVP level or a complete bust. But that's where we are because this world sucks. And teams are forced, not forced, sorry. Um, Teams claim to be forced into this position where everything is kind of untenable because you might get a verbal agreement out of this kid and then five years down the road, you spent the money before you get to sign him. So, of course, the kid just has to take a pay cut if he wants to sign with your team. Or in the meantime, he might have, you know, stopped being good at playing baseball, so you drop him from your program because, of course, you're not going to spend that money. What are you? You're a rich person. You don't keep your word. That's for the poors. So you've got all these perverse incentives. And the weird part about it is that in some ways, this open market is a good thing. If teams, if, if MLB told teams, you have unlimited money to spend on international players, go throw, I don't care, throw $60 million at the next Juan Soto, see what happens. You know, that would be one thing. Players could actually, you know, play teams against each other the way they should be able to do. And it would essentially be unrestricted free agency the way it should exist. But instead, what we have is this weird patchwork where MLB claims to care about competitive balance and parity. They don't. And claims to care about small market teams. They don't because they don't exist. There is no such thing as a small market team. And the result of this is a horrendously corrupt system that, like every other sport at some point, apparently, ends up verging on child abuse, if not quite there. And, you know, beyond just like we've spent all this money on this 12 year old who just didn't develop the way that we thought we do because we don't have crystal balls. Like you're making an agreement with a 12 year old who does not know anything about market economics or uh, salaries or living expenses or anything like that. This is a child that you're committing to signing with a team to go into a foreign country to to play and ball and make money for you because at the end of the day that's why they want to invest money in these kids these literal children not just young adults literal babies to make money for them sometime in the future which is really gross like talk about a farm system like you're you're growing infants to play baseball for you which is very strange uh the one comparison that comes to mind is that in in soccer and especially international soccer, there's you know teams have academies that you know tend to uh, you know be where 
kids from the local area will play. And, you know, the best of those kids will rise up through the academy and might one day make the pro team. And there's something that's maybe better about that system than, uh, you know, the system of the draft where, you know, where you end up playing your professional sport is completely random and out of your control. Um, But there is still the question of, what sort of decision making can we reasonably uh, rely on from 12 year olds, from 13 year olds, from, you know, and the power imbalance is always going to be on the side of, you know, the professional sports team making millions upon millions of dollars. Um, and it's doubly weird that there is this element of, you know, the U S sports league, uh, taking children away from the Caribbean, largely. Um, it's, you know, there's something that doesn't sit right with me about that. Uh, no, I'm sure you could speak more to that. It is a tragedy that the U.S. and um, through its professional athletes has made baseball a big part of life in several countries. And even as baseball becomes... I, I do think baseball is in something of a resurgence as far as its audience goes. It's growing laterally a little bit more than it was in previous years. Um, and, and I think you are going to see a return to that. But having said that, the fact that U.S. baseball is constantly mired in all of this crap, and there are so many other countries where baseball is a big part of life, and those are not the biggest leagues in the world. Leagues that when American fans watch them, they're going, oh my God, this is so much more fun to watch. This is amazing. And then they complain about the product that's being put on in the U.S., you know, the the much more marketed and sanitized and cleaned up product versus this other stuff. The fact that children are being taken from those other places to come play in the United States for the chance at the dream of making the show and earning big money. I can't blame them for seeking that, obviously. At the same time, it is deeply saddening that they should have to come here to do it. The U.S., and I've said this before, is the country on earth that least deserves baseball. Because the U.S. has turned it into this massive system of, like with everything else, of mistreating the people that do all the work for the benefit of people who get to sit on their butts all day long and make millions of dollars for doing nothing. None of the people who own baseball teams in the United States do anything to justify the obscene wealth that they own. And for many of them, their baseball team is not the major thing that's earning them money, but it's a sizable investment. It's something they would notice if it came off the books, if it were, I don't know, expropriated and nationalized like it should be. But those players are the ones going through, you know, immense amounts of conditioning, immense amounts of training, watching what they eat, not just so, you know, they can finally get to the major leagues, but so as we found from Phillies and Astros pitcher Kent Amano, so they don't test positive for peds again, you know, things like that. Uh, Players who are doing everything possible to be in tip-top shape, well, with some notable exceptions, uh, to be available to play at the highest level of this sport. They are putting themselves through physical and often psychological hell 
for people who are not rewarding them with what they deserve. And while I don't think that rich people anywhere else in the world are better, it is certainly the case that it feels like every time the U.S. gets a hold of something that should be fun, they both manage to make people, very few people profit from it, and then also try to make it as boring as humanly possible. And that's the problem I have with that, that you have both the immense amount, the the immense imbalance between what the players are making, what minor leaguers are making, what international players are having to do to, you know, scrap against each other for the few spots that these teams claim are available versus what the people at the top, the league executives, the team owners are making for, again, doing zero work. That to me, And then on top of that, putting a putting a product that's got so much polish on it that you can barely see it literally because of things like blackouts because of things like prohibitive costs uh whether at the ballpark or on television so it's it's become this this it has this sterility to it that makes it impossible to enjoy like i i legitimately don't know that i'm going to watch major league baseball this year and it's partly in relation to some of these issues, but it's partly because I am tired of having to lock my conscience in the back of my head for a bit, knowing everything I know about the way that this league is put together. I, I'm not saying that everybody has to do that, but for me, it is very difficult to enjoy American professional baseball knowing what, you know, knowing, having seen behind the curtain. We're going to end this segment on that note, but when we come back, um, we'll have a little bit of time for our third segment, our positive segment, where we can maybe chart a different future for baseball in the United States and you know what a better future might look like. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Strikes. And Lou. Hey, guys. We've been talking about the labor situation in Major League Baseball broadly over the last uh, 45 minutes or so, um, you know, First, the conditions that have led us to uh, lockout that at this moment still endangers the start of the regular season. And then expanding that more broadly to uh, the conditions faced by minor league players in the U.S. and uh, developing players in um, the Caribbean, uh, countries like the Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Panama, as we... We do on punching out. We want to end this show on something of a positive note. We want to envision a future that might be better than the one that Major League Baseball has currently created for itself. You know, there's this narrative that the league is losing fans, losing interest. Uh, people are, you know, supposedly upset by the length of games that they want uh, increased pitching changes to be done away with. They want the shift to be banned. They want any number of changes to be made to the sport itself to, in theory, bring in fans of the you know, 
social media generation who just refuse to pay attention to baseball. We'll think about things in a punching out sense, you know, away from the field of play and in a labor sense, you know, what would a better future for major league baseball be, you know, how do we fix the problem that is Rob Manfred's uh, running of major league baseball? I mean, we could start with Rob Manfred. Anyways, we could nationalize the MLB starting with the Astros ASAP. That's my two cents. Yes. I mean, that is actually true. We should nationalize Major League Baseball. Having said that, by the way, uh, they did just meet and announce that apparently the Players Association withdrew the free agency proposal. Which was modest to begin with. Yep. And made a Mm -hmm. modified revenue sharing. So if you're listening, any member of the Players Association, coward! (laughs) But they are going to meet again tomorrow, and I'm sure the owners will get more of what they want tomorrow, because already the PA is showing, you know, that they're willing to bend on some of these things. Anyway. Part of the problem is it's not entirely their fault. There is definitely a lot more pro-labor sentiment in the U.S. than there has been in quite some time. But... All of the idiot people who were, will spend all their money either paying for the MLB subscription or uh, going to the ball games or spending thousands of dollars on DraftKings betting on this, uh, which you can uh-huh. guarantee MLB is seeing some of that money. Uh, these these people are the ones who are going at this and saying it's the players that are stopping this and not the and not realizing the fact that the owners locked out the players players didn't decide to go on strike the players didn't cause this the owners did but to them the owners represent the game which is immediately stupid the moment you take more than two seconds to think about it when you're not embedded in your phone the players make the game the owners are all colluding to keep everything exactly as it is. I think over the last decade or so, we've seen an increase in fans identifying with owners due to the rise of fantasy sports. Every Joe, nobody who sits in the you know 15th row at a baseball game, you know, thinks about himself as potentially the GM who could build the master team uh, instead of, you know, potentially being, you know, the hero player who hits the game winning home run Uh, because fantasy sports has made it very easy to think of players as just pieces on a board to mess around with as you choose, rather than as people striving to do the best they can. Well, and also because I think people increasingly think, and we've made clear why that having to be a baseball player would, to, to earn your money is a mugs game. That you should earn that money by doing nothing. By just sitting on your butt, making a few decisions, pushing some paper, and letting somebody else do all the hard work. So you don't spend years in the minor leagues. You're not doing the strength and conditioning training. You go to the gym when you feel like it. And you don't have to watch what you eat. And God forbid, you know, you be from another country and have to enter the, the league proceedings that way. So between that, between the prevalence of sports betting that the league is aiding and abetting, no pun intended, and I don't really understand why it's okay for leagues to do that because to me that just screams rigging, but sure, why not? The fact that these leagues are getting into grifts like cryptocurrency and NFTs, oh God, we're going to get so many emails. MLB could not more be making its case 
to be an illegitimate steward of the sport of baseball. And there are a couple things that need to happen as a result. One, the antitrust exemption needs to be gone. For, uh, among other reasons, I think most baseball fans don't even seem to consider baseball an amusement anymore. So I think we have to resubject it to the interstate commerce clause, which means the antitrust exemption goes away. Second of all, I really wish there was some way of making MLB compete with every other league around the world, because there is plenty of baseball being played in other places, in Japan, in Korea, in Australia, in Mexico, in the Dominican Republic, in Puerto Rico, in, well, you can't say Cuba in this country, in Venezuela, in, you know, there are plenty of other places where this sport is played. It is not unique to the United States. There's even like small volunteer leagues, amateur leagues in Germany and Austria, for God's sake. I found one the other day. There's a Russian guy who got in it signed during the international period this year. So it is clearly something that has more reach than MOB wants to pretend that it has, except when it comes to recolonizing these places and using their labor and undervaluing it. The fact that there are not people walking around in Hanwha Eagles jerseys, okay? The fact that there's very few people walking around with a Cangrejeros hat on, okay? The fact that you have so many American fans who see this product in other places and know how much fun it is. And then go back every year to the default. is a real tragedy to me. And I say that as somebody who's been a fan of all of these things. Um. But I think it's time that MLB get humbled a little bit. And I mean the league, not the players. I mean the owners. I mean the GMs. I mean Rob Manfred, especially Rob Manfred, because that's what he's paid for. In May 2020, which was X amount of years ago at this point, we saw Korean baseball organization was playing games on ESPN because, you know, America's COVID situation was wildly out of control. There was no way we were going to get baseball underway at that point in the year but in South Korea things were largely under checked you know they had things managed and so we got a little bit of a taste of you know Korean baseball culture there weren't fans allowed in the stadiums of course and that diminished from it somewhat but I I really appreciated seeing something different something I think there's always something to be gained from seeing how elements of your culture are appreciated elsewhere and seeing how they are also elements of other cultures as well. There's, I I think, you know, set aside baseball, that is just one of the better aspects of life. If we aren't able to achieve labor peace on this episode of Punching Out, at least maybe we can achieve uh, this small amount of, you know, cultural you know, exploration. Uh, For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Lou. I was Noah. And this was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.